1: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a twenty-year warranty, and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit Douglas.ca/CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Leila Savic, founder and editor-in-chief of La Converse. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thank you. Today, Leila, we are going to talk about the struggle to prevent Quebec from turning into Louisiana. It could happen any day now, folks. And YouTubers United, Canada's viral heroes get together to fight the government. Welcome to Shortcuts, Leila, where we talk shit about the news.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: This episode is brought to everybody by Marcus Savard, Morgan Chawla, Simon Owen, Emma Dorval, Matt Perrault, Liam Kavanaugh Brodette, Devin Black, and Leah.
2: Hi, my name's Leah. I'm a college English instructor in Vancouver. I support CanadaLand because of the in-depth journalism on so many issues that are important to myself and my community. Special shout-out to Commons and the show about long-term care. And also, félicitations to the team of Les Tours and Émilie Nicolas for the new French language show. I'm excited to hear more. <music>
1: Premier Francois Legault says strengthening Quebec's French language laws is a question of survival.
2: We are also proud to be a Francophone nation in North America and it's our duty to protect our common language. We need the immigrants to go to French schools and I think that uh, what they have to understand is if Quebec is bilingual, unfortunately the attraction uh, in North America to English will be so strong that it will be a matter of time before we don't speak French uh, in Quebec and we become uh, Louisiana, Louisiana,
1: yeah. So, Leila, that is what Quebec's government has to say about Bill 96, and that is what Canadians heard about it via the CBC. Here's what Americans heard about Bill 96 when reading the Washington Post. If Quebec Premier Francois Legault was head of a country rather than Canada's second-largest province, he would surely be regarded as one of the world's nastiest right-wing populist leaders. Since his election in 2018, he has cut immigration by 20% in the span of a year, imposed prohibitions on Muslim headscarves and Sikh turbans, and presided over petty crackdowns on the public use of minority languages. And now, he wants to add text to the Canadian Constitution, declaring that Quebec, a diverse, multicultural democracy— should be primarily understood as housing the nation of the French-Canadian-Quebecois people. And that was written by none other than J.J. McCullough, who we will talk about later in our next segment. For better or worse, he is The Washington Post's preeminent Canadian columnist. He's their opinion guy in Canada. And I'm not sure that he has this wrong. What do you think? So...
2: For many people affected by these laws, that's how they feel. I think the difference is that's not what we're hearing in Quebecois coverage. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting. We had something similar happen when we had Bill 21. So I was working at the time at Metro. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to cover these stories where I was going to speak to these women who were affected by the law and my editors were nice enough to let me do that. But I think I was literally the only one at the time taking the time to actually talk to these women and find out how are they actually affected by this. And if we look at the global coverage, who has been lending a ear to the women affected by Law 21? The best real coverage has been coming from The Guardian, The New York Times, you know, even anglophone media because there's an understanding there there seems to be a lot more empathy
1: bill 21 of course being the ban on religious headwear and mm-hmm. it's interesting because i think you're talking about the cultural schism between within quebec and within french language media where this is like kind of understood as a mainstream normal thing and a protectionist thing that's just totally rational but then when outsiders look at it and i think specifically outside of canada They're like, what is this? Who does a thing like this? And that's the thing. And then a lot of us feel like that in Quebec, but Mm -hmm. our voices aren't heard.
2: And so I think it's very similar with Law 96, right? It's like this idea of we're going to protect the French language by imposing it, Mm -hmm. right, by making sure that people are only allowed to go to francophone CGEPS by, you know, forcing small and medium-sized businesses to adopt French. And then they're going to check their cell phones and check, you know, their private computers to make sure that they're speaking French at work. And then, you know, making sure that services are only given in French after six months of an immigrant coming to Canada, which is completely To be honest, ridiculous because French language immersion classes are extremely inaccessible. Definitely learning French is a challenge right? It's not that easy of a language to learn. And if you have to have a job, right? You're just going to do your job. You're not going to quit your job so that you can learn French. So when people come here and they're in very vulnerable positions, they need to feed their families, right? And so the problem is, yes, sometimes they'll be given money so that they can learn French, but it's not consistent. It's not enough. It's hard to find those schools. It's not always that accessible. And so it requires some sort of literacy, you know, in the country to be able to navigate those spaces. So it does happen, but a lot of people just give up at a certain point because it's just not sustainable.
1: Looking at how this is getting presented around the world, it is something that's attracting the attention of the New York Times, stricter laws around language. NPR picked this up. Lawmakers in the Canadian province of Quebec this week adopted a law tightening mandates on the use of French in government
0: and in businesses. But debate over some of the most contentious provisions of the bill are far from over.
1: What's interesting to me is that, while this is certainly getting covered in English Canada, I don't feel like we're paying very close attention. It just feels like kind of like a repeat of an old story, but international press is just looking at this very askance, and that attention from international press and from American press, that seems to be getting more of a response from the Quebec government, and there's a bit of a PR war going on right now. I mean, it's just sort of the default thing, and we'll hear this later on today, too, of just government— calling fake news on anything they don't like. So, you know, the Lagoda government published these advertisements in newspapers dispelling the misinformation, the fake news and the lies and saying, here are the facts because people are being misled about what this law will mean. It makes it hard for me as a newsreader to like, okay, so what does this law actually mean? The CBC did a service in publishing. Well, this really was the work of legal experts. You know, the government's fact-checking the media, and then these legal experts then go and fact check the government. And here's my understanding through this CBC story. In fact, despite what the government says, in the future, fewer healthcare workers proficient in English or any other language than French will be available to provide services to clients not comfortable in French. So it's going to have a discriminatory effect on those healthcare workers. Bill 96 requires all legal documents filed by companies to be in either French or with a certified French translation. Anybody like operating a convenience store or some, some small business is going to have to like pay for translation. These are tough things when you're in a new country anyhow, dealing with bureaucracy and dealing with legalities mm-hmm. and, and, you know, all the red tape in a different culture and sometimes a different tongue. The burden of that, it seems that that is going to be visited upon every small business. The search and seizure thing, the government denies this. No, no, no. There's no language police going into your computers. In fact, the legal experts agree that there are specific provisions in the bill that allow the office, the language office, to enter into premises in order to obtain information and documents. It's wild stuff. That's the kind of stuff that gets New York Times' attention, like you have language cops just going in and seizing computers. And finally, the government pushes back saying like, oh, there's a lot of misinformation about there that this discriminates against First Nations, In fact, we are going to be compatible with the rights of First Nations and Inuit communities. Well, the lawyers who had a look at this for the CBC or through the CBC story say, actually, the Inuit of Nunavut, as well as the Cree and Mohawk and other First Nations have all expressed concerns. In fact, I think the Mohawk have cut off communications with the Quebec government over this. They have all expressed concerns about this requirement, and they have asked to be exempted from the law, which... Right now, they are not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting, specific to the indigenous communities, you know, in Ganawaki there's been a lot of protest. And we're actually going to go do that this week at La Converse. So that's our focus right now, to, to look at this law and specifically how it's impacting indigenous communities and BIPOC communities. I haven't heard those voices much. And that's a problem. It's always a problem in francophone media. You'll get an editorial. Published That, you know, kind of mm-hmm. condemns these laws, but you're not going to get much reporting speaking on the ground to the people affected by it. And that's why we needed to start our own media, right? Because it's really astonishing to me, to be quite frank, that, you know, the reporters are not putting effort into it like it's easy to pay for a columnist and say you know hey just tell us what you think that's fine that's relatively easy without taking away from the work of columnists but like it's a much more of a sustained effort to do reporting on it and to do journalism and really think through and you know do accountability work uh, what is going on here and explaining you know the relationship to french for many mohawk cree And in with communities in Quebec, it's a colonial language. It's a harmful language for them. And so they they don't want to have to speak French, right? And that's very particular of the way we have relationships with French in Quebec.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit more. There's a thoughtful Globe and Mail piece about how the Quebec government is sort of misunderstanding. They're looking at statistics like the rise of English as if that means the decline of French. And in fact, French is slightly rising the fact that english is becoming more popular and that francophones want to go and study english does not like subtract from the french in their brain and this idea that that's going to turn quebec into louisiana is erroneous this article was looking at this i think through a bit of a limited binary that like imagines you know Quebecois people, their kids wanting to learn English to be a bit more connected to the world because English is sort of this universal language that doesn't mean they're not going to be francophones. You were chatting with me a little bit earlier about like, I think a bit more of a complex understanding of how language works in a lot of different communities that maybe is also in a blind spot of this legislation.
2: Absolutely. I think that for many BIPOC specifically growing up in Montreal and Quebec, they speak what we call anglais, right? Like in a sense, they speak French. Sometimes there's English. And and like specifically in Montreal, people speak French and people, BIPOC communities speak bilingual in a sense that like if somebody asks me, like when I just got here to the airport, people are like French or English. I'm like, whatever. I'm perfectly comfortable in both right and that's the case for most immigrants most bilingual communities in quebec were completely comfortable in both languages like because we maybe we grew up with french with the law sar but We went to university or college in English or we just consume English media or, you know, we consume English uh, productions or we like English music and whatever. And so people will most likely feel more recognized in English. That's a huge blind spot I'm seeing when we're talking about French. People need to ask themselves, why is it that so many people have a bad relationship with French? Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just like, oh, French is not cool. We don't like French. Boo French. That's not what's happening. What's happening is Francophone spaces are racist. And their level of advancement on anti-racism on DEI is just miles away from what's going on in English Canada and in North America. And so when you're a young person coming from an immigrant community, a community that's marginalized, you don't really want to navigate in those spaces because you're harmed, right? So like, I remember going to J school at UDM and my prof was like, Quebecers were colonized by the English. And I was just like, okay, uh-huh. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. We're... Yeah. And and this is an argument I hear a yeah. lot in many newsrooms. Yeah. Francophone newsroom, across, like I worked in, a, in almost all of them, and and I would hear this quite often. Like we were colonized by the English, and they really believed that. I'm like, you guys are two colonizers, and you lost. That's what happened, and that's completely erasing the indigenous experience. So I wouldn't even imagine what it would feel like to be an indigenous person sitting in that classroom, hearing your professor saying we were colonized by the English. But people are so stubborn about it. And they really think that they've been colonized by the English. Now, I'm not saying like, yes, there was an equality, right? Yeah. But to say that you were colonized by the English?
1: Well, there's a certain history, isn't there, of like making these equivalences or equations within advocating for the French-Canadian cause and for language and nationalism, but always by comparison, is, it always feels like there's collateral damage in making these rhetorical arguments. As you're describing this, what occurs to me is what you're saying is totally fodder for the Lego side of things. Like, it's totally compatible with the protectionist intent of this bill. Because what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that without measures like Bill 96, BIPOC youth might abandon French. It's not a friendly language, not a friendly space. And if they're, you know, more in touch with the wider world through the media they're consuming, the conversations they're having that are not constrained by provincial borders, then if you are looking at this from Legault's point of view and, and you're there to protect this unique culture, this nation, its language, then, well, damn, you know, thank you for that argument. More reason for us to, you know, clamp down here. But
2: enforcing it is not the way to go about it. You know, it's not by forcing you to go to Francophone schools that we're going to get them to reconcile with the French language as a language, a decolonial language, Mm -hmm. a language that listens to them, that understands them. It's by changing the system, right? It's by changing the spaces, right? It's the way we talk about DI in those spaces, Right. Like if I were to do the work we do at La Converse in English, I could very much say we're a BIPOC led media. Like that's what I say. When I present myself in French, I can't be as bold mm-hmm. as to what I'm doing, because then I wouldn't be taken seriously. Like just like like myself, like right, like people in the Franc Francophone media world, I would say for the most of my career didn't take me seriously. They're like, You're not a journalist, you're an activist. Here I'm innovative. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really interesting. I'm an innovative woman leading a great media and people love our work our work is recognized in the states it's recognized in english canada it's recognized in france but in francophone media we're not taken seriously to be quite frank the
1: same introductions get you dismissed or or minimized
2: it's not the introductions it's just what we stand for yeah we're media created by women of color Mm -hmm. and that bothers people Because Quebecers see themselves as an oppressed minority. And so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about all the youth I'm working with, like the BIPOC youth, the the youth from Maghreb, from Saint-Michel, from Montreal North. Like These guys are speaking French, but they're never considered as francophones. But they speak French at home. Mm -hmm. They speak French with their parents. I mean, I speak French with my mom, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a francophone protectionist. You know, I just don't have that relationship to the language right like i think that french is a beautiful language i think that it's important to to come back to the work we do that these conversations happen in french because that's that's where it's dangerous the fact that we're only having these conversations in english is the biggest danger to me we need to level up in french but we're not leveling up when we talk about the protection of the french language we need to ask ourselves, why is it that people don't want to go to francophone CJP's? Why is it that people want to go to Concordia? Yes, there's a question of... W- why? Why don't they? Because they're not heard. They're not under They're harmed in francophone spaces.
1: You could maybe get on board with protecting French if the idea of French included your French.
2: Yeah. I, I guess I could, right? I think that when when we're talking about francophones we're only talking about white francophones
1: this episode is brought to you by the center for addiction and mental health camh we hear a lot about the opioid crisis we talk a lot about the mental health crisis these are serious problems these problems affect us all they've affected my life and my community they're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help Change Mental Health Care Care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca Canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Layla, it is your first time on this program, but you are aware that part of the responsibility of co-hosting the show is letting people know about news items that they may have otherwise missed. Can you duly note something?
2: Yeah, I can. So I've been working on this since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. The way the war in Ukraine has been reported on really bothers me because the the Roma people have been completely excluded from the conversation. And so I did a story about this at the beginning where I spoke to various Roma people in Ukraine, but also in other parts, refugees moving through the war and how they've been systematically excluded from refugee centers. And also, you know, the really intense racism they've been facing in Ukraine. Now, it really bothers me because when I'm looking at it, you know, it's as if a war happened in Canada and we didn't talk about how it affected Indigenous people. So, like, the Roma people are the most marginalized community in Europe and extremely marginalized in Eastern Europe. And anybody who's been to Eastern Europe knows about the programs, the forced sterilizations, the extreme segregations that are happening in our community. And I find that again and again and again, we're always excluded from the narratives. And that's precisely why I decided to become a reporter, because I'm Romani from former Yugoslavia. And the same thing happened again. I was just speaking about it with two Roma women uh, here in Toronto yesterday about how, you know, when the war happened in in the former Yugoslavia, in the Hague documents, it's the Croats, the Serbs, the Bosniaks, but the Roma are not there. And testimonies were not there. In Srebrenica, there was Roma who, who were killed, Roma men and boys, and they're not named. And there's been like, really, like, I don't even have a word for it, like more than systemic, just almost voluntary at this point, exclusion. I don't even know how to name it. And even Christine Amonpour is reporting at the time, right? And we're seeing the same thing. Only few reporters have covered it. But frankly, Roma reporters are the ones covering our community. I'm getting messages from Roma people we we gathered in a group called Ukraine Roma. Mm-hmm. And I've been getting messages since the beginning of the war. And people are like telling me like, you know, Roma refugees are taking to the tent for refugees, right? Where they put the Syrian refugees and all the other black and brown refugees. But the white refugees are taking to the night centers, right? And there's a lot of exclusion. And so I've been speaking to people who have been telling me really terrible stories. Honestly, how I'll tell you one, uh, some Roma women were leaving the border in Ukraine. And some of them were actually... Coming back because they were facing so much racism in borders across Eastern Europe that they actually preferred going back to war-torn countries than going abroad with their children, trying to make it while being systematically excluded. And so one woman went up and her child was asking for water. And the guard was like, I'll spit in your mouth. Uh And this is what our community faces. And I'm not surprised because... You know, I think that unfortunately, I've said it many times, this is something that runs through our blood. We're almost used to it at this point, you know, to like we're born and we know that this is what we're going to face, right? Like we're almost at a point where like we don't expect to be treated with so much respect from what we call the Gages, the non-Roma people. And so we've kind of sometimes, you know, thought of like, created our own world where we don't really mix. But I'm seeing this, and it really angers me, to be honest, uh, to see so many people talking about Ukraine, but forgetting the fate of the Roma while they are the most marginalized and violated group in Ukraine.
1: Well, you know, the saying that uh, the first casualty in war is the truth. I don't know that it's about the truth being sacrificed, but it has alarmed me how quickly the global press has turned into the wartime press, and how quickly narratives have been reduced, simplified, and that kind of simplification to a very simple moral s- story. But that doesn't leave any room for nuance, complexity, history. As a Jew with familial lineage, depending on where the borders were at the time, intersects with Ukraine, it's a little bit uncomfortable, glorification. And the reduction of these narratives mm-hmm. for roma people maybe in more of a present tense i kind of feel like in 2022 to have a wartime global press rah-rah-rah it feels so strange to me i feel like it's possible for us to walk and chew gum at the same time i feel like we can have nuance we can report on the complexity of some of the strange things that are happening with Azov Battalion and, and other things, we can we can report on the complexity of racial politics in Ukraine without taking anything away or subtracting anything from the validity of mm-hmm. the Ukrainian cause right now. I think that like we, we have to try to reflect all these things. That's
2: really interesting. So when I was starting to report on this first day of the war, I was speaking to some folks and I was asking them, what should I do? What do you guys need? And they were telling me, you know, we're a little worried because we don't want the racism that we're facing to be used by the Russians as, you know, proof of neo-Nazism, you know, being like in the country, right? Not being, but like neo-Nazis ruling the country. So what they said is like, yes, there are neo-Nazis. In Ukraine, let's be clear. They've been denouncing this for years. I mean, yeah. you know, Roma civil society has been working on this for many, many years. But
1: that's now is not the different time different. to talk about it because it helps the Putin message too. Exactly. Know, but, but and but that's it's what they said. True, so. Now is
2: not the time to talk about it. But at the same time, we can't ignore what is happening to our people.
1: Duly noted. I want to duly note the trial of Jacob Hogard, singer of Headley, who has now been convicted of rape. I think we have an idea. About how these uh, celebrity sexual assault stories play out, and there's like a very popular conception of this is like accusations come up, and then oh the, the guy's tried in the social media he's tried in the by the press before he can have his day in court, and you know there's a pile on of accusations, and you know who even knows which ones are just copycat accusations or if they're real or if they're minor or major that's a narrative that I think is kind of well known. What played out here is a narrative that I think is, is far less understood or even, like, you know, known about, which is that what we found out only after the jury went into deliberations, we heard all about these two women who accused Jacob Hogarth of rape. We heard about his trial, people following along at home while people are following along the Johnny Depp thing. They're following along this Canadian story of a, of a celebrity here. And there was another piece of this that the press was keeping from everybody. And it was only once the jury went into sequestered deliberations was the press allowed. There was a publication ban that prevented them from reporting on accusations that actually had been shared by the press. Another rape allegation that allegedly occurred before The ones that Hogarth is currently on trial for and was actually shared with the CBC in 2018 before any of the other allegations had been published. So the idea of this being some sort of a like pile on, no, uh, this was actually like maybe the initial allegation, but the accuser at the time spoke to a CBC reporter, but did not want to go public with the story at that time. So then these other two allegations come up, the guy goes on trial and all the while CBC is aware of this, but I I understand you don't want to go and publicize a story like this against the wishes of the accuser, but then she decided she did want to go forward with it, and the publication ban prevented anybody in the media from reporting on this other allegation because it could have prejudiced the jury. I understand that. I was trying to figure this out before we're going into taping, and I wasn't able to in time. I'm going to keep looking into this, and maybe listeners will be able to help me with this. I don't know if this kind of thing happens in the States or elsewhere, where like— you know, there's a matter of public interest. We're all following along. People are trying to figure out if the celebrity, are these allegations credible or not? You're watching the trial. And what you don't know is that there's a history of this that goes back before this. There's an accuser who wants to go public. There are other criminal charges that are forthcoming. And the whole public conversation occurs in a state of, of partial ignorance to this other allegation. Publication ban, I do know this. The use of publication bans in Canada exceeds, uh, and the limitations on the press exceeds, what journalists in the States face. In this particular instance of, like, holding back uh, allegations like this during a trial, I'm really curious to know from legal experts and the listenership if this is something that could have happened in the States. But it's definitely something that I wanted to point out, and it seems like there will be, you know, perhaps another trial.
2: Wow, and I think this raises a conversation about... Publication bans and sexual assault. Like, can we have a conversation publicly about this? Duly noted.
1: Layla, the TikTokers and YouTubers of Canada, the meme dancers, the makeup tutors, the guys who film themselves playing video games for audiences of millions, all of these people, they are getting their shit together to fight Bill C 11. Justin Trudeau is trying to
0: censor your social media. Bill C-11, proposed by Trudeau's government, would give extreme powers to the CRTC, allowing them to essentially control what you see on the internet. I'm working with YouTube to share an update on some new legislation in the works in Canada. It's called the Online Streaming Act. If you're from Canada and you're watching this right now, then what I'm about to say definitely affects you. The reason why is it messes with the algorithms.
1: Our lovely Prime Minister, Justin Turtamper Trudeau is trying to pass a bill
0: it's guaranteed to pass at this point with the NDP and Liberals little
1: pact going on will probably force most youtubers from Canada out of the country
2: so don't believe that promoting content creator thing because if they
0: wanted to they would have done it a long time ago
1: And Layla, these Canadian YouTubers and TikTokers, they've got celebrity allies. Here is Russell Brand on Bill C-11. The push to get Canada's controversial B-C-11, otherwise known as the Internet Censorship Bill. I can see why they want to call it (laughs) C-11. Sounds a little bit less incendiary. Should we do the C-11 bill? Oh, God, that's boring. What's it all about? Making sure everyone shuts up and stops saying we're undemocratic
0: because of the way we treated them truckers?
1: So I'm going to explain to everybody a little bit more about Bill C-11, not to be confused with Bill C-18. There's actually a trilogy of bills here in which the government is getting involved in media in Canada. And I think we need to disclose, Layla, that you and I have joined a squad. We're on a team.
2: (laughs) A squad.
1: A squad. We have, like, it's a loose coalition. You're an independent publisher. I'm an independent publisher. And we are lobbying the government on a different bill, Bill C-18, the Online News Act, yeah. uh, which is a different thing, but it's part of this suite of bills. So, you know, better just to disclose than not. We're, you know, actively involved in that legislation, not so much with Bill C-11, which uh, people might remember more about Bill C-10, which is the previous version of this that got a little bit more attention. And now it's this Bill C-11. Let me try to give a quick explainer to our listeners about about Bill C-11 as I understand it. it's not going to be so quick. We got to go back to the birth of CanCon here. Why do we have CanCon? Because in the 70s, there were like three channels on TV. And the worry was in this sort of like, you know, Pierre Trudeau-ish post, like this Canadian culture moment of like, we can't just allow ourselves to be overwhelmed and washed in American culture. And if there's just three channels and just Hollywood movies, then all we're going to consume is American. And we need to have Canadian stuff too. And the airwaves that we watch television on belongs to us. So if you want to make a gazillion dollars, they said to the Rogers and the, you know, all the different d- telecoms, you're going to have to, for your broadcast license, kick some percentage into a fund to make CanCon. And that's the price of doing business in giving Canadians the American stuff that they actually want. That is the birth of the entire system that gave us everything from the beachcombers to Schitt's Creek and telefilm, the whole thing, I think, to generalize a little bit but that's really like you know th- that's why they did it and it was reasonable because mass media at the time had very few channels of distribution and they were and they were primarily Americans. so that made sense. The impetus for Bill C11 is is a little bit different. It might be completely different because you would have a very difficult time making that argument now to say that unless the government gets involved, we're not going to have Canadian culture on today's mass media, on YouTube, on Netflix on TikTok, you'd have a very difficult time arguing that Canadians are being shut out in an age where like, I don't know, everybody from like Lily Singh, like, I don't know, Bieber got a start on YouTube, but we're talking about the big ones there. Like there really are thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians. I mean, millions who use these platforms, but thousands who've actually like... Started there. There's thousands who are currently like, that's their job. Yeah. You know? Like, it's an industry. Like, They're
2: content creators. Yeah, that's and we they, sneer yeah. at them
1: and we, and, and mm. you know, the fact that they are doing like whatever, whether it's meme-based stuff for, I think the shorthand is all cat videos, but it's a lot more than that now. But a lot, you know, what you're seeing is a huge explosion of stuff where people are getting paid to make stuff. Some of it is explicitly Canadian and some of it is just by a Canadian and we're speaking to the world. And I would say we're seeing much more representation of who gets to talk and who gets yeah. to build businesses than ever before. So you'd have, you'd have a very tough time saying that the reason for this legislation is that if we don't have Bill C-11, we're not going to have all these diverse Canadian voices on our media. Cause like we have them. The reason for Bill C-11 is very different. The reason for Bill C-11, I will argue, is that, and it's, it's, it's not an unfair argument, those legacy broadcasters, the Rogers and the other Canadian cable, people like selling us television through, you know, those, those technologies, they are saying, hey, how come we have to kick in money to this CanCon fund when our chief competition is Netflix, YouTube, Disney+, Apple TV, and they don't? Right? Why, why is the government taxing a Canadian company and forcing us to pay into this CanCon regime and not taxing our foreign competitors? Shouldn't you be helping the Canadian company? And from their point of view, I understand that. Now, you might say that their solution for that is like, you know, maybe nobody should have to pay into the CanCon fund anymore because Canadians don't really watch that stuff anyhow. Yeah. No, that's not the way they went with this. They went the other way. They have Bill C-11, so, you know, Netflix and YouTube and all the rest are going to have to not only pay money into a CanCon fund, but—and this is one of the stickier points—they're going to have to, like, promote those shows in your feed to hell with what the algorithm says. The Canadian stuff that comes out of CanCon is going to have to get, like, a certain billing. And it's getting rammed through because we have a liberal NDP partnership— and they're, like, really rushing this legislation. This is really serious stuff that I think is going to dictate how culture gets made in Canada for, like, mm-hmm. years, decades. The same way the 70s CanCon regimes, like, it impacted my whole life as a Canadian media worker. You know, this is, this is, like, these are the rules. So that's the lay of the land as I understand it. And the reason why the YouTubers and the TikTokers are up in arms is because they're afraid of how this is going to impact them. Government doesn't give a damn about them. Government is like, this uh, this law is there to tax Netflix, YouTube, et cetera. It's not for user-generated content. But the problem is, what if you're in the middle? What if you started off as, like, user-generated content just for fun, but you started making money off of it? And that might even include Canada land. Because, like, the government keeps saying, this is for commercial media. We only want to tax the commercial media. So what they're afraid of, and what maybe I'm afraid of, I don't know, Mm. is, like, Imagine a universe where we meet the threshold of, like, well, you're making money from streaming, Canada, CanadaLand, so you're going to have to pay 20% of your revenues into the CanCon fund, but then we can't get any money back from that fund to make Canadian content because that whole... Regime is like, is your screenwriter Canadian? Do you have a 6 out of 10 score of Canadian? It's built for the TV and film industry. It's not built for the podcasting industry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like taxation without representation. Sounds like Bill C-18.
2: But yeah. There are (laughs) some
1: really big similarities, actually. There are some really big similarities. And there's some weird crossovers because we talked about J.J. McCullough. In the first segment, because he wrote this piece for the Washington Post, Mm -hmm. if you were wondering what happened to J.J. McCullough since uh, his, his one appearance on this show, he's become something of a thing on YouTube. He's got millions of views on YouTube, and, like, he does YouTube videos about Canada. Millions of people watch him, and he actually represented YouTubers to Parliament. Hello, friends. My name is J.J. McCullough, and I am a professional YouTuber
0: from New Westminster, B.C., Today, I hope to teach the committee about Canada's vast YouTuber community and why so many of us fear Bill C-11, a bill we did not
1: ask for, do not need, and threatens the success we've already achieved. Dunk on this guy all you want, okay? With, like, and to refresh people's memory, he's got this kind of, like, goofy, hipster, conservative kind of look. He's, like, this skinny dude with, like, a hipster haircut. He used to have this big hipster mustache, but he's just, like, conservative. (laughs) And, um... He sometimes doesn't, you know, necessarily research his takes uh, as much as you might. And he says a boot in this very pronounced way, which I'm convinced is a troll. He's, he's from New Westminster, B.C. And I think it's like this game he plays where he says a boot and then it's sort of like a dare that people are going re- like to respond to as people do on social media and make fun of him for his supposedly Canadian accent. And then he can say, hey, that's not really nice to make fun of somebody for their accent. But I defy you to find anybody else from New Westminster who says a boot in the same way that J.J. does. I think he's putting it on. so. Layla, that's the situation right now. And, you know, the government says that this is all bullshit, which is also similar to what we we're hearing before. The Quebec government calling, uh, you know, any kind of criticism fake news. The Heritage Ministry is calling this all, they've they put out, you know, it's, it's been covered widely. The Heritage Minister says there's a lot of bad misinformation about this bill. He says, you know, this bill, this idea that it covers user generated content, it's not true. That's fake news. Here is what Ian Scott who runs the CRTC, says about that. 4.2
2: allows the CRTC to prescribe by regulation
0: user-uploaded content subject to very explicit criteria. That is also in the
1: Act. Okay, so uh, I don't know uh, who's lying here, if it's the Heritage Ministry or the CRTC, but it seems that this bill does cover user-generated content. And there's this question of, like, what is the threshold where you consider it commercial and they won't answer that so you're a content creator
2: i'm not a content creator i'm a journalist i would not call myself that but yeah i know but
1: we do kind of create content
2: yeah but i think there needs to be a conversation around content creation because i think that i mean that's a side note but i think that content creator is also a way to call yourself when you're when you do sponsored content rather than journalism.
1: It's part of what we're talking about throughout this whole conversation because what we call ourselves and what we consider ourselves and what something like a law considers us is a point of conflict. And I I hear you. Like, you've got, like, different types of media creators. You've got these YouTuber TikTokers, like, they're the content creators. No, we're the journalists. I don't know if this bill makes that distinction. Yeah. Uh, But I won't insult you and call you a content creator. (laughs) Please,
2: thank you. Okay.
1: (laughs) The plot sickens um, because here is where another content creator representing, I don't know, TikTokers and YouTubers, this guy who runs the Buffer Festival, which is like a festival of online video, he was speaking to parliament and he got confronted by MP Chris Biddle, liberal MP. Where's he getting his money from? Of course, TikTok has said, you know, uh, we represent these creators, and this is bad for the creators. Who are you receiving, which tech companies are you receiving money from?
0: YouTube and TikTok. So, wow. this, this is really shocking to me. This is almost like starting a union but taking money from management. This is an extreme conflict of interest. How is this not an extreme conflict of interest? And I guess back to my original point, were you lying to this committee when you first appeared? Um, I don't see how it's any different. Um, you know, we take no government funding and everybody
1: here in support of the bill is deeply invested in government funding and supporting the government's bill. Hmm. He kind of turned it on there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting point because it's true that like all the stakeholders in the old CanCon system, like the TV production companies and the actors unions and, and the broadcasters, they are lobbying the government for Bill C-11, but they are doing it. Like they get a lot of money from government. So... I guess they're lobbying with the government's money. And then YouTube and TikTok turn around and say, okay, two can play that game. Let's fund these independent creators to go and lobby against the bill. And, but it's a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit dodgy because it's like you, you think you're getting it from these independent creators, but actually it's funded by big tech.
2: Yeah, but do these independent creators have the funds to defend themselves on their own? That's kind of the problem, right? Like, we're not all standing on equal foot here. I mean, I could make a parallel with C18. We're Let's not do de- it. Do we have the resources to, to strategize, to lobby? Do we have the same amounts of money? Do we have pockets as deep as our friends in legacy media? We don't, right? So how are we going to make our point be heard, right, if we don't have the means to do
1: that? Okay. What we have, though— in our fight as journalists, is a little bit maybe more of a sense of how these things play out politically. And uh, the National Post reported this week. This a very yeah. strange story, mm-hmm. but you and I know the inside track of this. Yeah, very similar situation emerged mm-hmm. where when we were putting together this coalition of independent news publishers, somebody said, "Well, nothing concrete, nothing confirmed here, but maybe Google would fund our efforts. Maybe we could take money from Google." and this all occurred under Chatham House rule, which doesn't allow me to talk about who was there, but I think I can talk about what happened. And anyhow, it's been reported by the National Post. For a second, it was like, that's kind of a fun idea, you know? Like, the big newspapers are playing with government money. What if we played with Google money? But then they're just kind of looking like, I don't know. I think we, we, we looked at the whole lay of the land and said, you know what? While we need the resources, this could ultimately discredit us. Even if we're completely transparent about it, we're going to look like puppets of Google. Yeah. And ultimately, we made the decision... No, we're going to fight this on our own. Mm-hmm. And so far, we've been pretty effective at publicizing our position without a budget. But if there is any money required, uh, the decision has been made. We're just going to pay for it ourselves.
2: Is that the final decision, though?
1: Well, that's a good question. Depends on
2: how much money we need to to strategize. Because as a thing, like my thing is like we're journalists. Journalists are not strategists, and we need to, if we want to win this, we need to recognize our limitations. And I'm certainly not uh, someone who who's like a political strategist. Like I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, and I know the strengths and the weaknesses of our fellow journalist friends. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I think that personally, if I was to to decide, I I think we should get money it would be preferable that it's not from Google. So, Well,
1: beyond that, I don't even like doing it because I don't, I, I guess I'd rather pay somebody to represent us in some lobbyist thing than like be like a lobbyist because I, I, I didn't get into journalism to be a lobbyist. Also, it's
2: know? a huge conflict of interest for you to go have lunch with MPs while you are reporting on them. Oh, so. hell
1: yeah. And now I now I have to give this big disclosure and, and offer this as like an editorial because I can't report on this stuff anymore. But you and I can fight about it in our next uh, coalition meeting. I think we'll just, we, we should come up with the money ourselves. So to yeah. me,
2: like it's kind of similar to C11 in this case case is like, who's invited to the table? And it's always about that, right? Like, it's really interesting, like the con folks are going to get their content promoted, thanks to this law, good for them. But what about the people in their basement changing the world? You know, and I'm not talking about cat videos, because good for cat videos. But I mean, that's changing the world in terms no, of No, it, it, it health, absolutely
1: is. I, but, I don't discount those people at all. And, yeah. and some, some of these trivial things or seemingly trivial things turn out to be incredibly powerful things. That's and, true. You know, I, 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 I think what we're seeing emerge here uh, on both bills is the government and old power, yeah. old media stakeholders mm-hmm. on one side. And then politics makes strange bedfellows, but it's the new creators and big tech seem to be on the other side. Yeah. And it's weird, but that's where we're at right now. For coming back to BIPOC communities, but you just
2: generally, you are not consuming... Canadian content. I mean, in Quebec, I'm seeing it, but I think here it's the same. Like, not yeah. a lot of people are watching Canadian shows. Look, it's a ridiculous like idea that they're going to tax.
1: Imagine they tax like Canadian YouTubers and TikTokers, and and then we're going to have a, a CanCon system where the next YouTuber is going to have is going to fill out a form saying, "Okay, I'm a I, this is true CanCon makeup tutorial." And then that's going to get preferential treatment in the YouTube algorithm. It's
2: not based on equity, actually. It's, it's not based just, on
1: reality. It's, it's this not, is not, not how it works anymore. And
2: it's also advantaging folks who have money and power and time to have this, like, probably really administrative person fill out those forms. A lot of youth are not consuming Canadian content, they're consuming social media content. Some of the best shows I've seen in French were done by these two comedians from Montreal North, Anna Usama. it's called On est là. And they're just talking about realities from the hood and the way they approach things. It's just so raw. It's so real. Now, these guys would never make it in Canadian content, mainstream industry, because they don't fit the mold. They don't want to fit that mold. They right? wouldn't
1: they even bother. They would make content and try to hit a global audience and then start running. Like, the people are building real dynamic businesses. Exactly. Like, they're not filling out forms.
2: They're not waiting. Like, we're at a point where we're not waiting for approval. We're just doing it. Yeah. And that's what social media allows us to do. And that's what new media, independent media, allows us to do.
1: That is shortcuts for this week. Layla, thank you for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
1: We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed to Jesse at Canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Layla, where can people find you and where can they find your work?
2: Yeah, they can find on La Converse Media on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and our website, laconverse.com.
1: This episode is produced by Aviva Lasard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, theme music. It's by so called. Syndications by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com join. for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.
0: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be serve this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.